0: Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Episode 72 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. Last week, I broke the story of a new kind of strike, one that its organizers are hoping will take off across the country, a student debt strike. Fifteen students from Corinthian Colleges, a for-profit college chain that is being dismantled and sold after repeated charges that it was predatory in its practices and did not provide the job training and placement that it promised, have organized a strike in which they are refusing to pay back their Department of Education student loans, demanding that the DOE forgive these loans." The story is complicated, you can read my piece at The Guardian and Michelle's piece at The Nation, but Corinthian schools are what is called career colleges. They promise they will train you specifically for a job, and promise extensive career services to place you in one when you're done. These colleges rely very heavily on federal student aid, but because of federal law, have to get at least 10% of their funding from sources that are not federal student loans. They've created their own private lending system to cover this shortfall, And after investigations into this from the DOE and several states, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau managed to negotiate debt relief on these private loans for many students who attended Corinthian schools. But as of now, the students are still expected to pay back their federal student loans unless they happen to have attended one of the Corinthian schools that is now being closed up entirely rather than sold under the auspices of the DOE. The Debt Collective is a project of the Occupy Wall Street spin-off group Strike Debt, and they are imagining a kind of union for debtors. Instead of banding together to gain power against your boss, they're banding together to gain power against a creditor. They're hoping to spark other debt strikes by calling attention to the power debtors can have together and to the unfair conditions that prompt many more people to go into debt in the first place. As real wages have declined, more and more people carry more debt, which eats into the value of those low wages, creating a vicious cycle that has its end in something like the situation of these Corinthian students, who are tens of thousands of dollars in debt and find that the education they went into debt for isn't worth the paper they signed away their futures on.
1: On the eve of the launch of the debt strike, I spoke with Ann Bowers of Florida. She's a former Corinthian student who is fed up, neck deep in debt, and taking a stand not just for her future, but for future generations.
2: I just want the loans discharged, basically. And I'm hoping that we can make a change in the whole higher educational system. Because I don't think it's
3: fair for students to desire to have a better life and the
1: best way to get it is through education. Well that's what I was taught. And now I find myself sitting in worse shape than I've ever been in my life. Because I tried to do better, do something good for myself, my family, and I end up in worse
2: shape than I'm when I started. And I don't want to see this happen to future generations. It's sad. And thank God for for Strike Debt stepping in,
1: because, I mean, there's so many of us out here in this situation. And what about the younger ones? They have their whole life, and they've got families to have, and such. The ones that, you know, just starting out in life, this is a rough way to start. If that doesn't go away, it's, it's like a black cloud over our heads. We're going to see the reaction that we get, but we're not stopping no matter what. We will go forward, and we'll fight back. They did not deliver on their promises.
2: How can they hold us for hours?
1: And from the annals of employers taking lots of credit for doing things that they should have been doing for their workers all along, Walmart announced recently that it plans to raise its workers' wages to a minimum of $9 across the workforce for its lowest-wage workers and then to $10 an hour by next year. That might mean a not-insignificant boost of $1 or $2 more per hour, which spread across an estimated half-million workers adds up to considerable cash circulating through the economy. Coupled with the company's new promises for a more stable scheduling system, Walmart seems to be responding at least partially to the long-standing demands that workers nationwide have aired over the years through protests, petitions, and lawsuits. The raise is important because some predict that Walmart's move could eventually raise the floor for the entire labor force because the company controls a tremendous retail market share and helps set standards for pay scales across the supply chain. Of course, the problem with these economies of scale is that more often than not, Walmart's ginormous size tends to undermine wages and working conditions rather than to improve them across the board. So while this raise is a bright spot, Uh, What's needed overall is a dismantling of Walmart's monopolistic power over our retail economy and the labor force and that will only come through increased organizing. As many critics have pointed out, this tiny wage hike is but a small concession and a much longer struggle for a living wage, as well as fair schedules, job security, and respect at work, unions, etc. Walmart CEOs may try to take the credit for this latest raise, but it's still far from what it takes to lift a working family out of poverty and off of public benefits, which Walmart workers are sapping up because Walmart refuses to pay a actual sustainable wage. So the fight goes on, and you won't get there without more organizing from the ground up, not from these top-down, sort of
0: PR-laden, noblesse oblige moves. So I am coming to you from Seattle this week, where I am here reporting on Shama Sawant and the Fight for Fifteen. I will have a piece out in the future in The Nation magazine, but you get a little bit of an uh, early glimpse at what I'm doing right now, because uh, I've spoken with several workers who are part of a campaign that eventually saw Seattle vote to raise its minimum wage in a phased-in plan over several years to $15 an hour. We talked about what went into their campaign, who joined them and who opposed, and what's happening now that the bill is passed. The first raise goes into effect on April 1st, when the workers will see a raise to $11 an hour, and the question in the workplace has turned to whether or not the workers will see their hours cut back. Some of them are already dealing with this, while others are seeing no changes. Here's a clip of Martina Phelps and Malcolm Cooper Suggs, both Seattle McDonald's workers, talking about the support of Shama Sawant and eventually other elected officials, and whether or not they are interested in forming a union in their workplaces.
2: She is the, she's maybe the one one politician that yeah. actually is involved, and people see that she's involved. So if they see her, like um, Mayor Murray, like right. he he fi- he came around and he's like, but someone was already a part of it. Mm-hmm. So him coming around, I didn't see, I didn't say, well, when I seen him, I didn't say, oh, my God, right. Mayor, Mayor Murray is coming mm-hmm. to our our events and all this other stuff, and it wasn't a big deal, right because if you weren't involved at first, like the people at city hall that were that were as totally against it, mm-hmm. there was a lot of them that yeah. were like, at first, I was totally against it now that I hear your stories, I'm so for it right but you, you know, know like like really you had to you had to you had to hear firsthand about how difficult our lives were yep. I mean, we really, had to sit in your face really, yeah. And really. We to you couldn't in do face the math. You can not put some me. numbers in the calculator real quick and, and come up and do the math on that and tell me that, not. like I said, people yeah. don't think about the things that they say, and um, I hope this movement has, a cur- has disrupted a lot of that. I hope people are thinking now. This has been quite the mission, but you know. <laughs> 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 doesn't look
0: like you're done.
2: No, that's all. we got a long way to go. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um, are you guys still pushing for unions at the stores?
2: No, um, I, I, I wouldn't no. say. I wouldn't say like it's like yet. to where we like to where we're like paying fees or anything. Right. But I, I'm pushing. I want people to be organized within their stores, like uh, yeah. just just because you know what I mean. Like they're they're we have power. Like, you know, these stores don't run themselves. We make these stores run, you know what I mean? Call the owner, tell him to come in and do something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He he ain't going to know what to do. So I I tell people to organize within your stores, stay strong. If you guys have a, a common issue raise the issue, stand strong together on that issue. And like that that's how you get things done. That's how we do it in Seattle. That's how you do it in SeaTac. That's how you need to do it in Kent. That's how you need to do it in Renton, Puyallup, wherever it is you live. Get organized and stay strong with your coworkers
1: airport catering workers protested in Washington, D.C. last week to demand that major airlines provide decent affordable health care. Imagine that. This comes after years of struggling with cuts to benefits, unsustainable wages, and incredibly harsh working conditions across the industry. These food service workers are the ones who prepare and process meals for flights at major airports, and they've been fighting along with their union Unite Here to push back against contractors that serve major carriers like American. The 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 outsourcing of catering services to contractors has helped airlines cut costs since the aviation industry descended into turmoil in the mid-aughts, but since then, business has picked back up, while the erosion of wages and benefits has only intensified. During the recovery, union members say that big airlines have been hoarding profits and in turn suppressing pay scales for workers down the production chain. Now, workers from around the country have launched a $0.05 per ticket campaign. They're demanding that airlines pay an extra $0.05 per ticket, which would in theory amount to enough to provide sustainable health insurance for these workers. The economic insecurity that catering workers experience reflects a broader trend in the industry, a relentless drive towards more efficient production systems. According to the union surveys, under a so called lean production system, the majority of workers surveyed reported being squeezed to produce more with fewer staff, and the grueling labor conditions took a further toll on their health, which also, of course, exacerbated the healthcare dilemma. The broader healthcare crisis reflects a dilemma within the lack of affordable health care across the workforce, even for those who nominally have access to employer-sponsored benefits. According to Unite Here, the extremely low wages leave workers unable to pay the premiums of the so-called minimum value plans—those are the plans that technically comply with the Obamacare mandates— but they are ineligible to purchase more affordable options from the healthcare exchanges that have been set up under Obamacare. Thus, as more workers fall into the healthcare black hole, where they are ineligible for fully subsidized healthcare and yet unable to afford insurance on their own, it's really up to employers to pay their fair share. Across the country, lawmakers are racing to pass so-called right-to-work legislation. It's the euphemistically named union-busting policy that threatens to eviscerate public and private sector unions alike. The idea, of course, is not as benign as it sounds. It is simply to bring death by a thousand cuts onto unions by restricting them from drawing union fees from all employees at a unionized workplace. This despite the fact that the union has an absolute obligation to represent the entire collective bargaining unit. As a result, the union's power roads as so-called free riders, opt not to pay to support the functions of their labor representative while also benefiting from the collectively bargained contract. This, of course, paves the way for a downward spiral of financial and political power for the union, and it further cuts into the overall unionization rates across the workforce. Despite its current popularity on the right, for a long time, Right to Work was a much harder sell to voters. So what happened How did it become such a hot talking point for anti-labor governors like Wisconsin's Scott Walker? We spoke with Loyola University historian Elizabeth Shermer to learn more about the politics and ideology behind right to work and what labor can do to fight back.
0: I guess I'm starting at the the very beginning, but sort of where did the so-called right to work laws come from?
3: Well, so, you know, actually you see a lot of this need to control union membership clauses. The first time we really see attempts to this are in the 1920s under the so-called America Plan. But the phrase right to work, one of the earliest known references that we've actually seen to it is around the turn of the century, a muckraking journalist by the name of Ray Standard Baker came up with the term, the right to work, in response to a union lockout and the and the strike breakers. And the interesting thing about the phrase right to work is that it's had a really Sort of tricky thing where now it really means these laws. Their most basic thing is about curtailing union power and union rights on the job and membership clauses. They're now sold in this whole language of this will bring economic opportunity, this is about individual opportunity. But you know, even in the mid 40s, you saw both Franklin Delano Roosevelt and uh, President Harry Truman using the term to say the right to work is about having the right to a good job. And central to that, of course, is union membership. Now, the first time we actually see the earliest laws that are going to this are actually what were called the Labor Peace Acts. And in the irony of ironies, the first Labor Peace Act is actually uh, passed in Wisconsin, of all places, in 1939. And then a couple of years after that, in about two years, you see six states passing them. And they really are the template for what would become the Taft-Hartley Act that actually made the right-to-work restrictions on the state level legal. But You actually see the first right-to-work laws called, specifically focused on union membership, because Taft-Hartley in 1947 is a catch-all of a lot of provisions that are anti-union. Those start happening in 1944 and 1946. The three 1944 races are California, where it did not pass. Arkansas and Florida. And 46 is the first one to pass in the West, which is Arizona. And that would be the one that would come up before the Supreme Court in 48, when the Supreme Court would rule that you could actually restrict your membership under the Taft-Hartley Act, even though those cases were before.
1: Going back to the situation today, who are the key political players behind Right to Work now? And who stands to benefit from these different state laws that are advancing?
3: Well, and you know, it's an interesting thing about who is actually behind it because when you looked at it, if you look at Scott Walker after he survived the recall a couple of years back, That's when he first really started floating the idea of a right-to-work law for Wisconsin. And you saw a lot of the Republicans in the state and the legislature really excited by this idea. And who was trying to put the brakes on it was actually business. And even though business has a tremendous amount of ways that they can benefit from it because it makes union organizing really difficult, there was this concern that in states in the Midwest, Illinois, Indiana, uh, Michigan, of course, and Wisconsin, there's such sort of allegiance to the union that you would actually see utter turmoil in politics, like exactly what's actually going on now. Much less what happened with the state. Now that being said, clearly business will benefit from this. What's right to work does is this is what the the first unionist said in response to right to work laws. Is they're really about the right to starve or the right to work for less. And so this will um, and actually you know oftentimes slashes take home pay and leads to sort of. The right-to-work states, um, the original ones, you see this sort of low-wage arc stretching across uh, the southern half of the country. But the other people who benefit is flat-out Republicans. This is a galvanizing issue. You know, right-to-work, what's so dangerous about it is the term seems so positive. It seems so all-American. I mean, who can it be the idea of a right-to-work when we're still coming out of this recession? So it has a lot of political clout for something that seems not just benign but actually good, where you can really sort of mobilize a base and also get maybe some business back. I'm not surprised that the business groups are opposed to this publicly because for a long time you actually saw a lot of these supposedly union-tolerant firms like General Motors, the big three, and manufacturers saying, we don't need a right to work, we don't need a right to work here in, in the Midwest, in the steel belt, but they're funneling money absolutely funneling money to all the, the right to work initiatives that are going on in the South and the West, discreetly, and more importantly, that they're going to be the ones who are members of the National Right to Work Committee who are doing the challenges to it in courts and some of their early attempts to pass right to work laws at the county level and the city level.
0: So you mentioned the South. Can you talk a little bit about the history there and specifically the connections between right to work laws and sort of systemic racism? Um,
3: the South... In terms of you know the early campaigns, it's actually really really fascinating because there's all sorts of issues around right to work and the question of race, and a lot of it had out and out race fading about um, you know interracial unionism and all of these different kinds of questions. Partly because we actually saw in the '30s. Examples, not a lot, but examples of what what might be possible under the CIO of bringing black and white workers together in the same union, the power of that. And so it was actually sort of uh, brought up. Now, another interesting thing, Florida race in 1944, you actually saw a lot of these businesses actually courting the African-American vote there, saying that unions are actually the ones that have been keeping you out of these really good jobs and that if we get rid of this if we get rid of these union membership clauses it'll actually open it up and you actually saw that in the southwest as well where that was the argument made to mexican-americans to asian-americans
0: So I read one of your pieces where you talked about how it seemed like we had sort of reached an equilibrium about right to work, that it really wasn't moving. And then all of a sudden, sort of after the 2010 elections, we've seen it jump back to the top of the priority list. Why do you think that is? Do you have some idea of of why suddenly we're seeing sort of all out war on unions?
3: Oh, sure. I mean, I think the the thing to to remember is there's always an all-out war on unions. It depends on whether it's in the public sphere or not, that people are noticing it, because it's certainly happening on the job. Um, and there has been a discreet challenge to right-to-work laws in the courts, largely fought by, or the umbrella organization for this, is the National Right-to-Work Committee, which has done tremendous work about challenging these continuously in the court. But in terms of why it's happening in, in 2010, uh, after those missions, is that Republicans are in control of those legislators, and they think that they can get this, you know, it fits into their ideas about what brings about economic opportunity, and by the way, right-to-work does not excite investment. And more importantly, it seems like something that's politically powerful, and And good to do. Now, the other part of that is the big difference going on about how right to work is being passed now as opposed to in the past is in the past, no one, not in the South, not in the West, would dare pass this in the legislature, the exception being in Utah in 1955. Um, because it's such an anti-union state there. No one touches it because the power of the labor movement and also the power of the idea that unions were actually beneficial. So the only way that they would do this is for ballot propositions. Let the voters decide. They do that all throughout the South and the West. Now, you cannot get a right-to-work law passed by popular vote in the Midwest. So what do you do? You do it through the legislature, and you have these dramatic signings in the state office like Michigan. And that just sort of shows that much This is about power and control.
0: That's really interesting because, I mean, we've seen, yeah, right now, even as we saw Republicans get reelected in in large numbers this fall, we also saw things like minimum wage and paid sick days. succeed. So it's interesting to see that the right to work measures used to be passed that way. And now we're actually seeing pro-worker things passed that way while the legislators are uh, taking rights away from workers.
3: And that's. That all goes to gerrymandering. You know that you have to see the two things as part. Of, like, rights to work laws are a symptom of something. You know, far worse sort of going on. It's about gerrymandering about who has control in the state legislature. I was talking to the Kentucky AFL CIO yesterday, and they were talking about how they've sort of drawn it that you're going to have a lock honorable can senate in the legislature no matter the the character of the house because the house in kentucky is deeply opposed to all the local right to work um, initiatives and the sad thing and the most dangerous thing about right to work laws it's not actually just what they do to the living standards and and benefits and working conditions but literally they tend to be the tip of the iceberg in terms of once you get this once you uh, once you you know put binders on unions ability to organize its membership get the vote out on election day it is actually this direct line to a lot of the more onerous things that could actually happen, particularly in terms of, you know, actually deciding how are we going to draw the districts to make sure that people are represented.
0: It's interesting because one of the ways that right to work laws get sold is that they say that you're being forced to contribute to political activism that you maybe don't want to do. And yeah, it's it's almost the most honest part of the whole campaign. <laughs> it's
3: possibly it's interesting to think about where there might be some honesty in the campaigns for right to work laws.
0: <laughs> Speaking of which, I mean, like, this is
1: all abetted, I'm sure, by the oodles of corporate cash that are flooding through political
3: coffers right now. Yeah, and I I think, you know, in terms of, you know, people were asking me about, you know, what are the most successful ways that people have actually fought um, right-to-work laws? And the fact is, is, you know, there were actually right-to-work ballot propositions all throughout the 40s and the 50s in the steel belt. Occasionally some of them passed, they were quickly repealed. That's the other story of right-to-work law. Sometimes these things are passed and repealed. Um, And it all comes down to the unions, but more so the fact that they have a robust membership. That ultimately this is about not just hurting unions, but actually just hurting the entire population of the state because it drags everything down. If you don't have people who can actually consume, how on earth are you supposed to have, you know, a good economy? You just start. This sort of creates its own
1: kind of negative feedback loop because as union membership erodes, so does union power. And then, you know, the working class gets progressively less powerful in terms of uh, political cloud as well as economic security. So, yep. Absolutely. So there's a always a lot of ideological uh, debate that goes into the lead up to such legislation or court cases related to right to work. But what do we know so far about the actual impact of right to work laws where they have been implemented? Um, you know, what are the broader effects on you know actual union membership, um, the loss of the loss of closed shop unionization, um, and and how does that affect in turn like wages, job security, things like that?
3: It takes a while for the membership to erode, but you can actually see it. In fact, I I I think it's one of the things that I've posted online. You can see a dramatic drop in union membership over the course of just ten years. So you have two neighboring states, Arizona and California, both you know boom. California more so than than Arizona in World War II. But the interesting thing is, Arizona coming out of World War II, right when they're about to pass the right to work law, has more union members, more union density than California, and that is where it's passed. And then, of course drops dramatically in less than 10 years time. And the same can be true in other parts of the right to work sort of belt that is sort of established. So it is a problem. And you'll see even more when those sort of good union members who stay in uh, the unit actually start retiring because they're actually not going uh, to be replaced. And the key thing about this whole idea that it's going to be, you know, we're going to be a right to work state and we're going to track industry, it doesn't happen. You know, You can point to some examples. The right to work law movement in Arizona largely came out of Phoenix. And yes, Phoenix attracted a lot of industry. They stole industry right and left from places like Unionized Chicago. The best example being Motorola. And they used to actually have Motorola... And General Electric executives say, you know, the whole reason we're here is because of right-to-work laws. It's actually not true. There's a lot of cost calculus going into why industries would move, right-to-work being just the tip of the iceberg, but it also sure didn't stop those businesses from moving. General Electric is no longer in the Phoenix uh, area, and neither – Motorola has basically largely pulled out. Um, And of course, you know, with capital flight going everywhere right now, what
1: individual states see as, you know, growing their industries is basically like stealing jobs from the neighboring state with and anti-worker
3: policies. Exactly. And those could be non-union jobs. as just as easily as they could be union jobs.
1: So we've seen right-to-work laws flourish during a period of um, all sorts of broader global trends that are eroding the power of labor, um, you know, everything from the expansion of neoliberal trade deals to changing workforce demographics to the decline of manufacturing jobs. Um, can you talk about what right-to-work has to do with these different trends that we're seeing um, kind of on a global scale?
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's just that, you know, the part, when you use the term sort of neoliberal, you, what do you talk about neoliberal? It's neoliberal is not the absence, you know, of the state or power. It's, it's a, a state that is redirected to help business. And one of the key things that business is now didn't used to that you can do to help is cut not just the wages and the benefits of its workforce, but literally the power and the job. You know, we talk about union democracy, and it's not just about being a democracy within the union itself. But it's literally about having more say in the workplace. And that is something you can see throughout in neoliberal po- policies about what can we do? What trade deals can we make, right, to benefit business at the expense of local communities or even, even the nation as a whole? You know, what can we do in terms of not, you know, cutting the, the pension plans and those protections for uh, workers as they may retire or if the business closed and they have really nothing you know, left to fall back on. And then, of course, actually, you know, what do you do when there are different jobs? One of the interesting things that a lot of the unions were doing in the manufacturing sector in the post-war period here, well, I'm in New York uh, right now or in, in, in Chicago, um, is actually they would have programs to help train workers for new jobs. And all of that goes out. It sort of cut the union movement that actually is making sure that those things are, are in place.
0: It has kind of struck me that in this whole conversation, we keep using the right to work framework. We keep calling it right to work when it has nothing to do with actually giving yeah, anybody yeah. the right to work. Right to starve. Yeah. Or I, yeah, you know, I like no rights at work because it starts out yeah, with no, Absolutely. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, the labor movement has really struggled to find a framework that people relate to that they can fight back against these initiatives. And, I wonder if you have some ideas about why they've sort of done this badly in recent years. Um, Was it complacency or something else that I'm missing?
3: You know, it's funny, like, I wouldn't, I, I would never say that the, the labor movement was complacent on the right to work issue. It's funny, actually, the, um, it's actually historians and academics first started this research well, less than 10 years ago. Um, no, everyone said that right to work was a complete and totally dead issue. It wasn't bothered to go to all these little southern and western states. It wasn't going to happen. But what was funny about that is every place that I would go is they would talk about, and this is actually true in Nevada, the casino workers were really trying to get rid of right to work, you know, in Nevada, and they never sort of gave that up. And more importantly, I remember I was at a at a conference in Detroit, and a UAW union came right up to me and says like, "Look, we know this is on the horizon here." And this was about six or seven years ago that there had always been that threat. So I think it's a difficulty. And you know, the problem is is that labor has had it's had its own internal problems for sure. You can see the argument about complacency for sure, but it doesn't change the fact that there has been a continuing assault on its rights. But in terms of, you know, you ask a great question, you know, how do you fight something that sounds so positive, the right to work, and your idea about, like, let's just start it with no rights at work, or the idea of right to starve, or the right um, to work for less, right to work proponents, all these conservative Republicans, these business folks are saying this is about your economic opportunity, it's about your individual right, that's powerful stuff, but I think that there's a lot now. You hear all this language about people thinking about themselves in the 99 percent but really what you're doing is you're sort of protecting the collective rights of all. And folks are really thinking, what power do I actually have, you know, outside, you know, I'm a member of this 99% we pull together, can help actually sort of to, to deal with this. But, it, I, you know, when you think of the tremendous job the labor movement has done turning out the vote on election day and the presidential elections to a certain extent in the midterms, it's a hard drive when there's such tremendous amount of money and pressure coming into this. Not to mention that there's still far more viewers of Fox News than there are of MSNBC or readers of the set. <laughs>
1: We're working on it. <laughs> Going back to this, um, you know, this terminology, right to work. Um, it, it's interesting that, uh, like, this idea of. Uh, it's done actually kind of a brilliant job of of maybe you know clefting the labor force in such a way that unions are seen as exclusionary or seen as the enemy of the common man right so um so can you talk about like where this terminology comes from and how the idea of individual rights and freedom has been conflated with this really pernicious anti-union attitude and, and um you know, also on that same note, is this kind of an American thing? Or, you know, does right to work exist in
3: other social contexts? You know, actually, you don't have anything about uh, the I mean, there's obviously anti-unionism, you can find anti-unionism, uh, you know, in Europe, a supposed bastion of, of unionism. However, union membership there is rapidly uh, declining. And the individual rights There's something there that is there is a very sort of American sort of flavor to it. But I will say right now, you know, we think now that politics is all about marketing and packaging and all that kind of stuff. They've been doing that for a long time, for decades. And actually, you could see that, you know, I mentioned before that right to work was really only the tip of the iceberg of sort of the anti-union assault that's been going on, you know, since the New Deal, since you actually had um, the Wagner Act, that sort of Magna Carta for uh, labor rights. But one of the key things that business groups get, got onto was this idea is that we need to make this about the individual and and there's a very big populist streak even though this is very much coming from the top down a lot of these business organizations and things like that what they love to do is say that you were you as a unionist you were under the thumb of your union boss, and actually, if you look at the early right to work laws, that is exactly where it flips. That the idea is that a worker works not for their boss on their job, their manager, but as under the thumb of a union boss. And this whole idea that this is a poor workforce who you know is 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 trapped by a corrupt union and all powerful labor boss. And when you ask me about the question of race, a lot of this they're talking about this in the South and West as a bunch of Yankee outsiders coming down, they're foreigners, they got foreign names, they're, they're Jews, they're Catholics and all this other kind of stuff, you know, pulling into this whole idea about the idea that if you pass this, if you protect your individual right at the state level, you know, you'll have this thing. And it was a very complicated argument that they were doing that is unfortunately stuck because unfortunately the first thing that people think of when they think about the union movement is not union democracy, you know, and the UAW or anything like that. They think of the Teamsters. And that's exactly the kind of image that was all about, you know, who right to work laws were supposed to protect workers from, that's the whole crazy argument, protect workers from these union bosses, these union bosses who keep businesses from operating, who, you know, keep us, you know, from having all this economic opportunity. And it's flat out wrong. But it's very powerful, very powerful rhetoric. And they had the money to disseminate all of this. The amount of money that was going into these right-to-work campaigns from the National Association of Manufacturers, um, from the very right-wing press. Look, we think Fox News is bad. A lot of these major newspapers that we think are liberal now were often in charge of very conservative families. You know, it, it, it was a very difficult battle.
0: So we're seeing this push coming in a lot of places. So we, we talked about Wisconsin already we're also seeing pushes like state elected officials like Bruce Rauner in Illinois yes. and the Supreme Court to institute right to work on all public sector workers. Um, and, you know, sadly, or just on home care workers. Which we right. Got Can you talk about the differences and similarities between the way this operates in public and private sector unions?
3: The Union density is extraordinarily low across the country, you know, public or private. But the only reason it isn't far lower than it is is because there's so much more organizing in the public sector. That There is so much more because you can't, You know, you don't have this idea of employer, employee, but employer free speech, the intimidation that can go into union organizing campaigns or anything like that. So, you know, targeting public sector employees is a great way to sort of really target one of the main uh, sources of unionism, of, of trade union democracy in this country is the public sector's employees. And that is, look, a lot of the good jobs left in this country are in the public sector, you know, the, the wages, the benefits, those kinds of things. And actually also because you're working for the state government, you can actually, you know, force them to comply with other parts of, um, of, uh, the civil rights law and, and things like that. And that's, you know, literally why you can see them taking on the public sector unions. And I'll say that the conservatives learned a long time ago that these are the unions because of their strength that can get the vote out on election day. The great example is Schwarzenegger, uh, in, had this year of reform a couple of years back when he was still governor and what defeated his year of reform and, the, and a couple of the planks were directly targeted to public sector unions was the strength of the teachers the firefighters and the policemen and the great thing about these public servants is literally how do you turn your back on your kid's public school teacher and those if you can if you can you know Get those unions. Not only you're slashing state spending, but more importantly, you're going after one of the biggest sort of, you know, political challengers that a lot of these conservatives face in the Midwest.
1: And yet you actually do see people attacking teachers' unions as if they're public enemy number one. So uh, it is it can be done somehow. But uh
3: it didn't work out for Rahm Emanuel, though. That yeah, was very, yeah. <laughs> but
1: I mean, that was also due to some really kind of like ingenious organizing on the part of, uh, you know, these unions that were very much rooted in the community. So I guess, you know, it's so, yeah, I mean, going back to this issue of, of organizing against uh, right to work and all the other um, nefarious policies that it symbolizes, aside from just pushing back against right to work legislation by mounting a political opposition, what are specific policies that organized labor might be able to push um, as a way to counterbalance uh, right to work, as a way to like strengthen the power of organized labor to uh, continue organizing. I mean, there was discussion a few years ago about the Employee Free Choice Act and and these other initiatives that kind of seem to have faded. Um, And I'm just wondering, what is a positive thing that can be advanced (laughs) in
3: the face of right to work? Okay, I think actually in your last question about, you know, how people love to go after teachers, you know, they'll go after the public pensions of police and firefighters. I mean, that's Scott Walker did that, you know, and he, he did get recalled and unfortunately he wasn't removed from office. But look, the fact of the matter goes is that, you know, organizing in the membership and getting that membership, you know, ratcheted up just like the, the Chicago teachers did a couple of years back was key. But more importantly, as you said, the other thing that they did was that community outreach? That it can't be just about this is protecting unions, which is why I don't like to think about the right to work as just about union membership. It's about the you know the um, the economic health of the entire state and not and the nation itself. This affects so many more people than those who are union members, and I think that that's the key thing to go on and on and on about. And that essentially what these right to work laws does is it actually just keeps fattening the wallets of the 1%. You know, Rauner is a great example. Rauner is a billionaire investor, <laughs> you know, going after this whole idea that, you know, economic zones where you can have fewer unions, therefore less uh, salary and wages going down to Illinois 99%, you know, no matter what part of the state, that's exactly the kind of thing that should enrage people and has been that takes a lot of the union mo- uh, movement getting internally sort of focused on the right to work, making sure the membership realizes this is not about their right to work, but their right to starve, or, and then also making sure the community understands why this is just so vital and why it du- directly impacts them all, that it is not just a union question. You know, it's a question for everyone. And that was Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, Assistant
0: Professor of History at Loyola University, Chicago, and the co-editor of The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. We'll put links to her work up at the Dissent website. You're listening to The Labored, a Dissent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at dissentmagazine.org. And now it's everyone's favorite time of the podcast when we say ARG. I wish I'd written that. The piece that made me go ARG this week was a long, searing investigation at ProPublica, the demolition of workers' comp, co-reported by previous ARG recipient Michael Grabell and NPR's Howard Burks, into the collapse of the workers' compensation system, the system by which, in exchange for giving up your right to sue your employer if you get hurt on the job, workers get our medical bills covered and wages paid out through an insurer. But employers don't like paying workers' comp insurance premiums, surprise, surprise, and they have found numerous ways to cut their costs. The piece is really long and deep and it would be impossible for me to explain all the details in it. But essentially what it does is look at the way Burks and Grebel write State after state has been dismantling America's workers' comp system with disastrous consequences for many of the hundreds of thousands of people who suffer serious injuries at work each year. The cutbacks have been so drastic in some places that they virtually guarantee injured workers will plummet into poverty. Workers often battle insurance companies for years to get the surgeries, prescriptions, and basic help their doctors recommend. The piece introduces us to Dennis Wedby, an oil worker who lost an arm in a horrific accident, who has refused to get the hook that his workers' comp will pay for instead of the high-end prosthesis that his doctors said he qualifies for that could allow him to go back to doing many of the things he could do before his accident. Instead he's tattooed a picture of his missing hand on his arm along with the date that he lost it so that people won't ask what happened. I lost a hand, I didn't lose a hook, he told the reporters. We learn that because workers' comp only kicks in when you have an injury, workers mostly don't know that our benefits are disappearing until the worst has already happened. As states cut back on workers' comp, other government programs are filling in the gaps. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, as well as food stamps and other programs— And in perhaps the most galling part of this whole story, employers have even figured out a way to profit from the program. That's right. In North Dakota, where Wedby was injured, the state Workforce Security and Insurance Agency is allowed to invest the surplus when insurance premiums exceed what is spent covering injuries. Grabell and Burke's note, Quote, After reserves are met and if investments do well, money is then returned to employers in the form of dividends. Since 2005, WSI has paid about $900 million back to employers. The dividends given out in 2013 alone, a ProPublica analysis of federal injury data shows, could have paid for myoelectric prostheses for every U.S. worker who has lost an arm or hand on the job since 2001. So... It's really worth reading the whole piece and understanding how yet another safety net for working people is being dismantled underneath us.
1: Sometimes it feels like our jobs are turning us into robots, and sometimes that feeling is more than just a feeling, it's actually kind of true. In Esther Kaplan's cover story for Harper's, uh, she peers into the world of the 21st century panopticon by looking at the world of workforce management. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and it brings the world of big data directly into the workplace and sometimes directly into the minds and bodies of workers. Every movement, every keystroke, every rest break that a worker takes is assiduously clocked, measured, and monetized. Kaplan details the companies that provide these tracking services to monitor workers around the clock in order to maximize so called efficiency. It's Taylorism redux in the information age where every corporation aims for maximum dehumanization and full commodification of the workforce. In this industry of workforce management, she writes, every aspect of an office worker's life can now be measured, and an increasing number of corporations and institutions, from cosmetics companies to car rental agencies, are using that information to make hiring and firing decisions. These systems also change the way we perform our work, Kaplan writes. For example, um, many retail workers now clock in with a thumb scan, she writes. Nurses wear badges that track how often they wash their hands. Eek! Warehouse workers carry devices that assign them the next task and give them a time by which they must complete it. Some may soon be outfitted with augmented reality devices to more efficiently locate products. Good God. Although this may enhance business in some ways, of course, uh, such as cutting down workers pilfering those office supplies, the actual so-called return on investment is not always so clear in social and moral terms. Workers are placed under constant stress. Performance might suffer under intense pressure and anxiety. Managers learn how to game the system by manipulating work time measurements. And in some cases, it becomes incredibly easy to arbitrarily fire people for so-called poor performance. At UPS, for example, the company uses telematics to drive workers to deliver their packages at a frenzied pace, but the result has been routine firings, uh, sometimes safety standards going unheeded, and workers suffering physically from being driven to labor at a relentless pace. Uh, one worker talks about uh, workers suffering from constant aches and pains, even having knee or shoulder surgery, like, you know, a bunch of aging athletes, uh, simply because they had to constantly deliver packages around the clock and were under constant pressure to keep performing. Now, as you can imagine, these systems tend to be extremely unpopular with workers, but at a time when blue-collar labor is becoming extremely precarious, and even unionized workforces like UPS are constantly coming under fire from management to produce more and more efficiently, uh, it's really hard to stand up to your boss in situations like this. The article should prompt readers to ask at what price efficiency, and we should also ask about what our consumer economy is doing to our psyches. Uh, What is it about these just-in-time logistics, fast food, instant gratification and social media, and the indulgences of fast fashion? What is it about these systems that make us so obsessed with speed and efficiency? What enjoyment do we actually draw from this? The pace and ferocious intensity of the consumer marketplace has led to the total monetization not only of our preferences and tastes, but of our labor, to the extent that many of us can no longer even enjoy the kind of leisure and modern indulgences that our neoliberal economy is supposed to afford us. So at what price do we get all of this efficiency? Well, that does it for this week's podcast. If you have a story about your boss spying on you or any other workplace issue you want to vent about, feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at DescentMag, hashtag belabored. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and tune in in another two weeks. Stay cool. This life
2: is hard, so hard, I must go. 825, hell no, we can't go.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored.